Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. All right. Thanks, Adam. Good to see all of you here this morning. How are you guys feeling today? How are you doing? It's been kind of a rough week. I don't know that we've had many great weeks uh, over the past few months or so, but in particular, kind of a tough week. So I hope you're all hanging in there. I hope you guys are doing well. Um, We are now in week four of our current series called A Perfect Union. We're diving deep into the greatest message that has ever ever been taught, the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus, as we're looking at it through Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7. We're going to continue this morning as we begin begin in the middle of chapter 5 in just a few minutes here. Um, You may have noticed that the title of this sermon is Perfectly Passionate. And I know that that title, that's the sermon, that, that, that sermon title kind of sounds a little bit more like a Lifetime After Dark movie special or something like that. If they, do they have Lifetime After Dark? I don't know if they do or not. But if they do, that'd be a great title for one of those kinds of movies because this is one of those things that we're going to be looking at this morning that is going to address some pretty mature themes. We're going to be looking at, in particular, anger and lust and uh, murder and adultery as Jesus addresses this from the Sermon on the Mount. And as we do, I think one thing that we want to keep in mind as we get into this new section of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is addressing all of these things from an aspect of disordered passions. In other words, that the disordered passions and the things that we desire, the things that we lust after so often, cause us to do and say the things that we do in so many ways. And Jesus is going to show us how from the inside, it is the inside that produces the things that we often say, the things that we often do and choose to participate in. And I think as much as what Jesus says about this, this is about us looking at a bunch of different aspects of of sin in our lives and issues that we deal with. And these disordered passions, how destructive they can, they can quickly become. I think that's part of the reason why Jesus starts with lust and anger, because those are two of those passions that when they get out of line and when they get disordered, we can see how destructive they can easily be. In fact, I think we see that in our culture all over the place. Lust has seemed to have been prevalent in almost every culture throughout history, but of course it has seemed to pick up a lot of steam more recently in our culture as things like internet pornography and things like sexual, sex trafficking have kind of exploded throughout our, our culture today. Anger, if you haven't noticed as well, has seen an uptick in its expression in our culture. We see it everywhere all around us, and so we are pretty intimately aware of the fact Uh, on a daily basis of how big and how destructive lust and anger when they're not ordered in the right way can be. In fact, I don't think it's a stretch to really say that our culture is in many ways outraged and oversexed. I think that as as much as anything is probably a good description of what we experience on a day-to-day basis in our culture. So as we begin this discussion today into this section of the Sermon on the Mount, I think it needs to be pointed out though that anger and lust are actually a part of who God has created us to be. And that there actually is a a proper way to express anger. There actually is a proper way to express lust or sexual desire. Some examples might be we might get angry at injustice. We might see somebody who's treated unfairly, and that causes us to be angry. We might see a loved one who is taken advantage of or hurt in some way, and naturally that arouses anger within us. Those are kind of righteous responses because they're birthed out of a sense of injustice or a sense of justice and a sense of love for somebody that we care about. Of course, lust, sexual desire, has its context and its expression within the marriage relationship. We're talking about lust. That's the proper way to be expressed in that way. But when these things get disordered and when they get formed and misformed in a way that is unhealthy, it can be unbridled and controlled, and we see the ill effects of that everywhere. 
And as we move into the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to talk about what happens when these explosive passions get out of control. And he's also going to provide us, I think, with the key on how to get these things under control so that they begin to serve the purpose for which they were originally created to serve in our lives. And as a result, we'll be able to see things like not only how lust and anger are ordered properly, but as we move through this next section, which is really an entire section of verses 21 through 48 that we'll cover over the next three weeks, we're going to see things addressed like jealousy and lying, revenge, hatred, holding grudges, selfishness, all of it. So there's something for everybody in these verses is what I'm saying as we go through these next three weeks. And so, um, and really, I think all of this is really for all of us on some level. So I say a new section as we get into the Sermon on the Mount, but I want to remind us that as we are taking 11 weeks to go through this one message, that of course this message again was preached at one place to one particular audience at all one time. So it was all one message put together. So even though you open up to Matthew 5 and you see different verses and different divisions and subtitles and Matthew 5 and and 6 and 7 have the same thing, we go from one chapter to another, in reality this was all one message that Jesus preached at one time. So it all connects together, which, which of course means that we need to keep everything in mind as far as how things connect from the beginning all the way through the end. And so just as a quick refresher, we started with the Beatitudes, where Jesus said, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are you who are meek, who are merciful. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. Blessed are those who are peacemakers. And he goes down this list of really presenting what it looks like to live the good life in the kingdom. And as he presents that to those who are listening, he's telling his disciples, this is what it looks like for you to live in the kingdom and to follow me. And he's presenting those who are maybe not sure about following Jesus and not sure about what his ministry is all about, an invitation to say, look, this is what the good life of the kingdom looks like. Of course, compared to all the other things that we might chase after, that this is the most beautiful way to live. And then Jesus calls his disciples the salt and light. That as you live like me, as you look like this, this is the character of God, and now you're called to be salt and light out into the world so that God can make his appeal to the world to say, look, this is the invitation to come to the kingdom, and this is what it looks like. I want to provide a distinct difference in terms of what it looks like to live and to operate under the kingdom of God. So all that comes before what we're about to read as we pick up in verse 21. But as we do, what we're going to see is Jesus begins to drill down a little bit more directly on what he has already said and presented to us in the first part, namely the Beatitudes, and then what it looks like for the law and prophets to be lived out, what it looks like for God's law as God's character to be represented through his people, okay? So Matthew chapter 5, then verse 21 says this, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser, While you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's talk about that real quickly. So, you can already see this pattern here, where Jesus says, you have heard it said this, but I say to you this. So what exactly is he saying? Where have they heard it said this? For example, Anyone who murders will be liable to judgment is the first thing he says. Well, of course, he's pointing to the Old Testament law. He says, you know, and as P. 
people were gathered there. Almost everybody in that crowd was Jewish. They came from a background where they knew the Mosaic law, and they had heard, obviously, from the Ten Commandments and other places, that murder was a sin and it was against God's law. So Jesus says, you have heard it said in the law, you're not to murder. But I say to you this. So what is Jesus saying when he says, but I say to you this? Is he contradicting the law? In fact, what he's doing here actually is explaining what it actually looks like to live this out. In other words, what is the heart behind the law? And he draws back to the heart issue behind the actual uh, action, which is how God's law was designed from the very beginning. And in this case, he says, you have heard it said that you're not to murder. And I'd imagine that most people in that crowd are thinking to themselves, yeah, that makes sense. We've heard that. Right? I think every culture throughout history has probably considered murder to be a bad thing. Right? It's a bad thing to murder people. And for most people, most people are not murderers. And so they might have been sitting there thinking, okay, well, that's good. I fulfilled that one. I'm good there. But then Jesus, before even almost taking a breath, draws it right back to make it very personal. In a place to where, as we're listening to this, none of us really have an out when he says what he says after that. He says, you have heard it said that anyone who murders is liable to judgment. But I want to tell you that anyone who has something against their brother, anyone who says to their brother, you're a fool, you're an idiot, that term raka actually means to be empty-headed, so if you ever called anybody an airhead, anybody who does those things are liable to judgment as well. And it's at that point you can probably feel everyone squirming around thinking to themselves, what exactly does that mean? And as Jesus drills down to it, you begin to see that as he talks about anger and unresolved bitterness, it shows how how those passions arise into this idea of what it actually means to lead to kind of murderous rage, if you will, and even to the act of murder. He takes it all the way back to the heart issue, and he's doing it for a couple of reasons, it seems like here. First of all, to show us how serious that is in terms of our heart issue, and that that's where that thing comes from. That so many times, like, murder itself is not just an act in the moment, but it is actually fed by something that comes out of the heart. So Jesus drills down to the heart, and then he presents this as the only way that you can really be saved from this is by the one who does work inside your heart rather than cleaning it up on your own. And so then he says this as well, as far as the immediacy of it. He uses this picture of if you were to go to the altar in the temple of Jerusalem, and you're about to present your offering there at the altar, which is an act of worship to God, and you realize that in that moment, before you put the gift down, that you have something against your brother, that there's anger or there's bitterness in your heart, that you deal with that right away. Put down your gift, go back and reconcile with your brother before you even come to the altar. And I think in doing that, Jesus shows us two things. First of all, the anger and bitterness and lack of forgiveness that is in our heart, not just, it doesn't just affect us, It doesn't just affect that relationship that you have with somebody else that you're angry with, but it actually primarily affects our relationship with God. That even though you may not realize it, that bitterness, that anger that you're harboring, that inability to forgive somebody actually affects your spiritual life with God. That's the first thing. The second thing is that once we realize it, we have to, there's a sense of urgency to which it has to be dealt with immediately. It can't be harbored, and it can't be excused, and it can't be rationalized. Keep in mind this. When Jesus is teaching this message, he is in Galilee, which is in northern Israel. Northern Israel is about 125 kilometers away from the altar, which is in the temple in the city of Jerusalem. 
For the average person who Jesus was talking to, they probably only made that journey once a year, maybe a handful of times a year at the most, because it took them about a week to get from where they were to the city of Jerusalem to the temple. And so Jesus is basically saying, if you were to make that journey a week long, get all the way to the temple, get to the place where you're about to put your offering on the altar and you realize that you need to reconcile with your brother, put down that gift and go reconcile, which might mean that they'd taken a week's long journey to get back to Galilee to make it right with their brother and then a week long to get back to the altar to finally lay down their offering. That's how much Jesus is saying this matters. This counts. This is what this has to do with understanding. It's not just hyperbole to make us feel guilty. It's getting at the heart behind the laws. It's getting at the heart behind what it means for us to actually live this way. It has to be dealt with and it has to be and, and it's something that is extremely harmful if we allow it to fester. And God is the only one who can change the inside. This is why Jesus often calls the religious leaders whitewashed tombs, because they had a way of dealing with the outside to make it look really clean. But on the inside, Jesus says, you are like tombs with dead man's bones inside, because you never allowed God to deal with the inside heart issue of it all. And I think for many of us, it's a lot easier to clean things up on the outside. It's a lot easier to manage our lives so that it looks good in front of other people than it is to actually admit that we need Jesus to clean up the inside. And so from there, Jesus proceeds to talk about lust in verse 27. And if you're familiar with this passage, you know that as forceful and as direct as he's been about anger, he doesn't let up in this passage. In fact, it gets even a little bit more maybe difficult to take. Verse 27, it says this, You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Okay, so besides murder and really other types of violent crimes, adultery is probably one of those things that most people would agree is wrong. It's in the law, and so as Jesus talks about it, it's not too much of a shock that people are talking about this issue of adultery. And at the same era that Jesus is addressing this issue of adultery. And, because, and, he, and he's not going into the gritty details, but he begins to talk about, look, this is what it looks like for adultery to actually fester in our lives. It comes from a heart issue, and this heart issue is the issue of lust. Now, adultery itself, the act of adultery we know, is obvious in terms of its damaging effects. It destroys relationships, it destroys marriages, it destroys families, it even destroys relationships with children. But most directly, more than anything, from a biblical standpoint, it violates what marriage is all about. The oneness between a husband and wife, which actually represents more directly Jesus' relationship with the church. So that primary image of human marriage within the Bible is supposed to be a walking, talking relationship that represents the gospel relationship that Jesus has with his church. That love, that oneness, that self-sacrificial love that Jesus shows the church is supposed to be radiated and reflected in the marriage relationship. That's actually marriage's number one primary purpose. So when lust and adultery gets into the picture, it begins to corrode that relationship, which doesn't only affect marriages, which doesn't only affect families, but actually affects the witness of the church. On top of that, 
you know, this is one of the things when Jesus addresses when Jesus addresses lusting in particular, he addresses the fact that lusting, just that feeling of lust, just those feelings and expressions of lust are actually corrosive. It's the heart condition that ultimately leads to adultery. Just like anger is the passion that leads to an action like murder or something like it, lusting leads to the act of adultery because the act of adultery rarely happens in a moment. It actually happens after lust is stoked and lust is coddled and lust is not dealt with. Instead, lust is rationalized and it becomes so much a part of who we are that it actually becomes the things that determines a lot of what we do, what we say, and how we respond to the world around us. And if that lust is coddled, whether it's physical lust or emotional lust, eventually it gives birth to an action that we look at and we say, well, where did that come from? But the act of adultery rarely happens in the moment. It's always something that has come from the heart that has been building until it actually expresses itself. I think it's difficult at times for us to realize this because we've often been told two big lies about when it comes to sexuality and marriage in our culture. According to God's design in marriage, as we talked about earlier, the ultimate purpose of marriage is self-sacrificial love so that it radiates the love that Jesus has or reflects the love that Jesus has for his church. I think so many people, when they get into the marriage relationship, they think to themselves, this marriage is about making me happy. Whether they express it that way or not, that's their, expre- that's their expectation. And so you'll hear a lot of people refer to marriage kind of like they do consumable products. That as long as this thing makes me happy, then I'll continue to consume it. But once I feel like it's not making me happy, then I'm justified to look for happiness outside of the marriage relationship. And that sometimes leads to things like just kind of lusting and having emotional affairs. It leads to things like uh, pornography. It leads to things like lusting after another life, lusting after another relationship, lusting after another situation in life. And ultimately, it may lead to a physical affair. And as you get to this place, what you see is that Jesus is talking about how quickly those things, lusting all these things and kind of coddling these things, turn into something that gets out of our control very quickly. I think the other big lie that we believe about lust is that as long as I can control my lust enough to keep it under wraps and keep it private, then I'm not hurting anyone. And look, culture backs this up. It feeds this, normalizing pornography and all those other things as as a healthy outlet for sexuality. Even though pornography feeds the sexual exploitation of women and minors and leads to things like sexual trafficking and how it's exploded throughout our world, not to mention the fact that it rewires our brains and actually changes the way that we engage and harms and breaks our souls. And really, I think the point can be made in all this. This is why Jesus gets to this place of saying, this is how important it is to deal with these things when they come to the surface. When this is, when this is spotlighted in your life, when you become aware of this, this is why Jesus uses the urgency that he does. Put down the gift and go reconcile right away. Cut off, your, cut off your hand if you have to. Take out your eye, which of course are metaphorical things, right? Jesus is not literally telling us to do harm to our body in that way. But it doesn't mean that he's not telling us how serious this is. In fact, he's painting this picture of you have to deal with it right away. Because these things have a way of growing and growing to a place where they become uncontrollable in some ways. So how do we do this? Because the reality in, in all of this is that these are powerful expressions and powerful passions that God has placed in us. And when they run amok, and when they get out of hand, they have an explosive ability to cause damage. Again, anger and lust. 
Well, coming off of Jesus' statement about our righteousness surpassing the Pharisees, I think this is the key to what it means to actually uh, turn the tide on these passions in our lives, is that he says we have to deal with this at a heart level. And Jesus doesn't mess around with this, of course. Some of these striking phrases are meant to get our attention. They're meant to show us, look, you may not take this as seriously as you do, so let me paint a picture for you. This is what it looks like. And I know that talking about self-control is not really inspiring on a Sunday morning. But I think that's the key to really understanding how this works. Biblical self-control. You may know that self-control is one of the fruit of the Spirit that's listed in Galatians chapter 6. If you go to Galatians chapter 6, you'll see that, that, that fruit of the Spirit is actually, or, or self-control is actually part of the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, it's a part of what the Holy Spirit's working in us as Christ-likeness. But it's often the one that I think that gets left off the list in our minds. Uh, we did this uh, several months ago as part of our staff meeting devotional time. And one of the things I asked the staff to do was, like, hey, uh, for one other person, like the person, I think it was the person to your left, I want you to just look at that list of the fruit of the Spirit and recognize one piece of the fruit of the Spirit in somebody else on our staff. And we kind of did this thing where we wrote it on a card and we gave it to somebody and said, hey, this is how I see joy in you. And of course, things like joy and faithfulness and love and gentleness and kindness came up. But nobody wanted to tell anybody else, I see self-control in you, right? Because self-control is kind of like that stepchild that just gets forgotten at the end of all these lists of these wonderful, beautiful things about the character of Jesus that's produced in us. But self-control might be the actual key to all of those other things actually being developed in our lives. Self-control is a big theme in the Bible. If you look in the New Testament and especially in the book of Proverbs, in fact, Proverbs 16.32 says this, it is better to have self-control than to conquer a city. Now, that phrasing about conquering a city probably doesn't appeal to us all that much, but in an ancient setting, conquering a city was the highest military achievement that you could accomplish. And Solomon's saying that even better than that is having control of your own life, being able to control your spirit, having self-control in your life. Many of you might be familiar with uh, this study that was done in, in the 1960s by Stanford University. It's become known as the marshmallow experiment. If you don't know it by the name, you probably know it by how the experiment played out. It went something like this. Stanford uh, University researchers got together a bunch of children, and they gave them one marshmallow. And they said to them, you can have this marshmallow, but if you wait 15 minutes without eating the marshmallow, we will give you another marshmallow at the end of the 15 minutes. And it was designed, of course, to determine whether or not kids could exercise self-control if they were given an incentive to do so. And as you know, if you have small kids, you could probably predict what happened for most of these kids. Right? They gave no thought to the second marshmallow. They just saw the marshmallow in front of them, didn't really have a whole lot of self-control with it, and consumed the marshmallow right away. What was interesting is that there were several kids who were able to hold off, and after the 15 minutes actually got a second marshmallow and were able to enjoy two marshmallows. But one thing that they did afterwards is that the researchers followed these children throughout life, through the years that would come as they grew through school, as they went into early, even early adulthood. And what they found out is that the kids, almost without exception, the ones who were able to wait that 15 minutes and exercise self-control, with few exceptions, those kids were more successful in school, they got better grades, they had healthier relationships, and as they got into young adulthood, they report, reported a higher level of satisfaction with their life. In fact, on average, those kids scored 210 points higher on their SATs than the counterparts who ate the marshmallow right away. 
Now, chances are you've probably heard of this study before because this study was hugely important in the development of understanding psychology and in particular answering this question, is there one thing that we can look at that determines how successful children can be when they grow up into adulthood? Because for a long time, it was assumed that intelligence or self-esteem were actually the most important factors. But what they found is that there was a stronger correlation between self-control and success for these children as they grew through adulthood. So for those of you parents who have your kids in club sports hoping they're going to get like a scholarship or something, maybe give them some self-control classes and that might help them get a scholarship instead. But here's the thing is that in spite of all this, in spite of how we understand the importance of self-control, self-control is typically not a value in the culture around us. In fact, we much more value things like self-expression and self-freedom. And when we think about self-control, it's almost like self-control is the killjoy that we invited to the party and he comes in and ruins everything. Like he walks in the front door, the music stops, the record skips, and all of a sudden everybody just looks around and says, that's ruined our joy and ruined our opportunity to have fun. But in reality, it's self-control that actually leads us to true freedom. I want to give you three things with the time that we have left that I feel like helps cultivate what God wants to do within us. Now, let's remember this. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. So it's something that by God's grace and by the Spirit's work in us is produced. It's not something we can produce on our own, but it is something that according to God's grace and His power in our lives that we can work to cultivate. And here's three ways that I think we can do that. First one is to have a bigger purpose. You know, I was actually planning on this week's message not diving into the topic of politics because I feel like we've talked about it a lot the first few weeks. Um, but let the record show that it took me 30 minutes to get into uh, the topic of politics into, into this message. So I feel good about that. But I feel like after the week we just had, it's like I don't know how you avoid it, especially in talking about this issue of outrage and anger. Um, first, we had what was called a debate on Tuesday night. I'm still not sure what that actually was that happened on Tuesday night. Um, and I don't think it matters who you actually are voting for or who you support in this election. I think you have to admit that that debate was an example of what happens when self-control just gets thrown out the window. I feel like a lot of people were responding to it saying a couple of things. The two guys on that stage acted a lot like children, and in a lot of ways, in the end, it felt very unpresidential. And what are we saying about that, right? What does it mean to be presidential? Well, it means to have some monicum of self-control, that you're courteous, that you're mature, that you're gracious, that you can be confident without being arrogant, that you're able to disagree without calling names, that you're not talking over another person as they're trying to make a point, but you can have an honest exchange of ideas. That's what we're expecting from men who want to be president of the United States. At least that's, I guess, what I would expect. And so at the end, a lot of people got to this place where they're like, these two men acted like children. What exactly did we actually learn about this? It was just an unmitigated disaster in a lot of ways. And it happened on both sides. But speaking of, I think as we were processing this debate, then we got the news that the president and first lady tested positive for COVID this past week, which was concerning in and of itself. I think anybody who heard that should have been concerned and would probably, hopefully, immediately start praying for the president and the first lady and anybody else who was affected because when the President of the United States gets an unpredictable illness that affects in particular his age range and kind of where he's at, you pay attention to that because it's concerning on a lot of levels. But what was also concerning, I think, was the response that many people had to the President and the First Lady being diagnosed with COVID. And I don't know if you saw this. I might not be telling you anything that you haven't seen, but it was disgusting and discouraging to say the least. Now, the last time we had a president remotely in this situation was in 1981 when Ronald Reagan was shot. There was an assassination attempt 
made on Ronald Reagan's life. And at that point, um, you know, I was only like two years old at the time, but as I look back on it and what you hear is that the country actually came together because we recognize this is our president, he's in the hospital, he might lose his life because of this assassination attempt. Now, certainly and hopefully, uh, President Trump's situation is not as serious. I think as we're hearing more updates, it's not as serious. But at the same time, instead what we saw in our culture this time was a significant amount of people wishing actually the worst for President Trump. In fact, I saw people actually wishing that he would die and go to hell, quote-unquote. And this wasn't just like some far-left radical on Twitter. This was like everyday people, people I'm friends with on Facebook, people that I'm a part of a local group here in the state that's about COVID preparedness, that kind of shares stats about COVID and all these things, and so I like to be a part of that so I can get updated. And there was stuff in that group that you couldn't believe. And look, it shouldn't matter personally whether you like President Trump or Donald Trump the man or not. To look at that situation and to say that I hope this person dies and goes to hell from this horrible disease is, I think, an indication of how far the outrage in our world has gone. And I think what we see in many cases is a culture that is buckling under its own sinfulness. And I think we're actually seeing what Jesus said about anger and how it plays out to murder very clearly described there. Is that people are angry, they're bitter, and so as a result, it's not too far to step into this murderous rage that they've coddled in their heart. This bitterness leads to a place where they do almost everything but actually pull the trigger with the rage that they express, wishing that someone would die from a disease like this. And as I, was, as I was reflecting on that, I began to appreciate even more the grace of God and really the kingdom of Jesus and our king because this is a culture who is falling apart under, the, under its own weight of sin all around us. And I think at the same time, there are people who are looking around and realizing that there are cracks in these ideologies that we, claim, that we, that we thought were going to save us. I think people are beginning to see, and, it's, and some of it happened over this week, it's been happening really for a long time, that they're looking around and asking themselves, where is the hope to be found in this world? And maybe it's not to be found in this political ideology that I've been following or this movement that I feel like is going to be the thing that gives us truth and hope in the end. Maybe it's something else. Maybe there is something else to be found in this world beyond those things. And look, this comes from a heart of understanding that personally, I don't believe that anyone is beyond the saving arm of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that when he says to us, you are the salt and light of the earth, I believe that this is something for a greater reason we are to be transformed. Because there's being transformed on a personal level, there's being transformed in the way that it affects our personal relationships, which are all great and good, but then there's being transformed for an even greater purpose. To be people who are the salt and light of the world so that we radiate and represent the character of Jesus Christ. And this is why something like dealing with the issues and the passions that are disordered in our hearts, the sin patterns that we fall into are so important because it's not ultimately just about us and our personal transformation. It's about what Jesus is doing in the world through us to save those who are lost and those who don't know him. We have a bigger purpose, and that's the great mission of Jesus, to seek and to save the lost. And we quickly disqualify ourselves when we allow our disordered passions to be expressed in ways that are harmful, hurtful, destructive, and sinful. 
Secondly, know who you are. You know, the Bible, uh, Drew Dick says this, the Bible portrays self-control not as restrictive, but rather as the path to freedom. It enables us to do what is right and ultimately what is best for us. From the biblical view, there are only two modes of life available to us, enslavement to sin and life in the Spirit. Look, the bigger point that Jesus is making throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount is that, again, these laws, the law and the prophets, represent the character of God, and they show us that as a result, we have this need for forgiveness and for transformation. That even though it's been God's goal from the very beginning to be represented through his people, we've fallen short of that, we've fallen short of the glory of God, and so we are in need of God's grace and forgiveness. But at the same time, Jesus also says that this is the way you are supposed to live. So that in saving us, he actually brings us to a place where we can begin to actually look like this and live this out. As unbelievable as it may seem sometimes to look through that list and think to myself, wow, if I could actually be humble and meek and merciful and pure in heart and somebody who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, that is exactly what Jesus says is the invitation to the kingdom that we can actually begin to live out right now. Now that doesn't mean that we don't sin because we certainly do. But in the end, it's a question of whether or not we are comfortable with our sin. I think when we see this presented from Jesus, we either say, yes, I want to live that way and that's beautiful to me, or it'll become something that's just kind of pushed off to the side as morality that's optional, or as something really that you don't even desire at all. Because look, I think there are people who might look at this list, as much as we say these are great things, and Jesus even says, blessed are these people that would look at this list and think to themselves, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be meek and merciful I kind of like being brash and arrogant and dominant. It's got me to where I am right now. And certainly the world will reward you in many ways for being brash and arrogant and forceful and even cheating people. I mean, all of those things will allow you to get ahead in this world. And in many cases, you won't ever even be punished for them. And so there's some incentive to actually say, well, that's actually how you get ahead in this world. It's dog eat. You've got to be that way. But look, what Jesus says is that there is a higher priority at hand here. And even in his explanation about what it means to go to court with somebody who's outside, he actually is saying, to some effect, that it's more important for you to be somebody who is is a minister of reconciliation than that you assert your rights in a way that forces you into a place where you have to go to court with somebody else. So sacrifice your rights if need be, because there's a bigger calling here to be ministers of reconciliation, to be people who are peacemakers even if that causes you to sacrifice. But look, in all of this, I think as we look at all of this, a true born-again Christian will not want to live that way because we have been made in a different way for a different purpose, and we have been remade as new creations in Christ. Here's another thing that I think is important for us to realize. I often hear Christians say, maybe you've heard this before, I'm a sinner. And I know what that means. It means that we we sin and we need God's grace for forgiveness in and of ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. And so there's good heart behind this. But I think we need to be careful about how we understand what we say when we say that we are sinners. Because the Bible actually, if you are born again and you're a Christian and and you have the Holy Spirit in you and you've been made a new creation, you are no longer primarily identified as a sinner. You are identified as a saint who's been made righteous by Jesus. In fact, All of these aspects of the New Testament reminding us you are a new creation. You've been brought from this to this. You are now people who don't have to obey the flesh or the sin anymore. That sin no longer has mastery over you. You have a new master. 
You have a new identity. You have a new purpose. You have a new future that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. I mean, all these things are about reminding us of our primary identity in Christ, that we are saints, we are not sinners. Now, we are saints that sin, but there's an important distinction between the two because I think this is important. It may seem like semantics to you, but think about it this way. When we get caught in sinful patterns, so many times you'll hear people say, oh, I'm just a sinner. That's what I do. It's part of my nature. But if you look at it from the standpoint of who you have been made in Jesus, that you have been made new, then you realize that that sin is not actually a part of your nature. It's actually unnatural for you to live that way. And it should be uncomfortable when those things pop up in your life. Listen to what Romans 6 says, verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will no longer have dominion over you since you are not under law, but you are under grace. Now once you see this, you see that there's hope to move past the sinful patterns in your life. That the sin nature no longer has mastery over you. You have a new master who is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is inviting you into this kingdom way of living. So then finally, the third one, rest in grace and then work out. Drew Dick says this, We tend to think of self-control as a strictly human enterprise, but Scripture describes self-control as a product of being connected to God. It's something that grows when your life is rooted in divine reality. In fact, if it's missing, your faith may be a ruse. No fruit, no root. What self-control requires ultimately isn't control, but surrender. Look, we have to be clear about this, I think, as we have been, but it's God's grace, of course, that saves us, and it's by his grace that we are transformed. In fact, just to realize and just to see something that's going on in my life, some kind of aspect of sin, as Jesus talks about going to the altar, and then you realize something's wrong in your heart, is an aspect of God's grace revealing that to you. We're We're dependent completely on God to do that in us. We're dependent completely on God to change or God to rec- for us to recognize what it means to change and how to change. And so that is the place that we ultimately rest. We rest completely in God's grace. But once we are born again, grace and effort are not opposed to one another. In fact, they complement one another. Listen to Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Matt Cap says this, Salvation is surrender. Sanctification is war. Or being transformed in the image of, of Christ. Spiritual growth, that's what we call sanctification, right? Sanctification is war. It's a battle. And we're supposed to engage in that. Many of us are familiar with what Peter says about Satan's war on us from 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You know, before he says that, he says, Be sober-minded, which is another way of saying be self-controlled. And so in the midst of the battle, he calls us to the one thing that we're supposed to do in the midst of this. Be self-controlled. Now look, in the end, as Christians, we have a choice about who we really want to be in this world. And the choice is spelled out for us in a place like Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And many times, 
the difference between being consumed by our passions and whether or not we actually are people who progress in holiness and sanctification, people who look more like Jesus, is whether or not we're willing to work out the salvation that God has given us and laid before us. And often this comes back to the virtue of self-control, the virtue of Jesus and the virtue of what the Holy Spirit is producing in us as a fruit of his work within us. And I think this is important to realize as well, that as we grow in self-control, we grow in freedom. We become more free to not only live, but we become more free to actually love the people who are around us. Someone who cannot exercise self-control is not a person who actually can love very well because their sin is affecting people who are around them all the time and, they're so, and they're disorder, their passions are so disordered in their hearts that they're not actually free to love people sacrificially the way that they've been called to. Self-control is the key to freedom. I want to give you this last example as we close this morning. Two different ways that we can see what it looks like to be transformed and to tackle temptation, to pro- progress forward in self-control. And it comes from Greek mythology of all places. In Greek mythology, there were these characters that were known as the sirens. You may be familiar with the sirens. They were known as these beautiful young women who sang this song that was irresistible to any man who would sail past their island. And in Greek mythology, it was a personification of temptation and how temptation can actually destroy you as well. Because one thing about the sirens is that they were actually murderous creatures. And so that once they sucked in the sailors by their temptation and by their allure, they would actually kill the sailors that uh, that approached them. And so in the Odyssey, for example, Odysseus realizes this and knows that at one point during his journey, he's going to go past the sirens. And so what he tells his sailors to do is to tie him to the mast of the boat, and then he tells them, no matter what, no matter how much I beg, no matter how much I threaten you, no matter how much I ask you, do not cut me free and allow me to get away, because he knew that he was very susceptible to their temptation. And on top of that, he put beeswax in his ears so that he wouldn't hear the songs and their singing, because that's what enticed, supposedly enticed the men. And so they did that. They tied him up to the mast, And as much as he threatened, and as much as when they went by the sirens and he could hear the song, as much as he begged, they didn't let him him off that mast. And so they ended up passing by safely. Now in another work called the Argonautica, Jason and the Argonauts pass by these sirens as well. But Jason is prepared for the journey, and he has a man by the name of Orpheus on board who is the greatest musician in, 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 uh, in Greek culture. And what he says to Orpheus is that when we approach the sirens and they begin to sing, I want you to play the most beautiful music you can imagine to drown out their song. And that's how we'll resist this temptation. And sure enough, as they pass by the island, the island of the sirens, they start to hear the song, and Orpheus begins to play the most beautiful music any of the sailors, any of the Argonauts had ever heard. And as they do, they pass safely through that without being tempted to run to the sirens. Now here's the thing is that sometimes it's appropriate to be tied down to the mast and to shove beeswax in our ears to resist temptation. It has to happen that way sometimes. But look, in the end, what really transforms us is listening to the beautiful music of the gospel, listening to the beautiful music of the kingdom, something that is more beautiful than the things that war for our hearts, our attentions, and our affections in the world. And this is the key to self-control. That it's to turn up the music of the gospel of Jesus, to take God's words and promises as more seriously, as more uh, consequential to my life and to my heart than the words and the promises that are out there in the world. And one of the ways that we're going to do that this morning is by celebrating communion. 
I think one of the things that we see in communion is that it is a reminder of the beautiful music of the gospel. As we come to that table, we realize and we remember all that Jesus has done for us and all that he has done to make us who we are as saved, as redeemed, and as people who are being worked out in the salvation that he has given us. As people who are, remi- who are reminded of the great mercy and love with which God loved us. And as we gather around that table and we have these elements with us, we begin to realize again that there is nothing more beautiful than being able to sit and rest in the grace of Jesus Christ. And as that takes root in our lives, to be people who then represent the goodness and the mercy of Jesus and the beauty of the kingdom in the world. So I want to invite you, if you would take your communion elements now, we're going to take communion together as a reminder of this beautiful music of the gospel. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 29. I'd like to invite the band. I think I can hear you guys back behind the, behind the curtain. Yeah, there we go. You guys would come up and we're going to worship as we, after we take communion. I know it takes a minute to get those things out of the packaging and all that, so I'll give you a minute to do that. But I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. This is where Matthew records Jesus instituting what we know as the Lord's Supper or communion. And he says in verse 26, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. So if you would take and eat the wafer as a representation of the body of Jesus Christ broken for our salvation. And then Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now drink the cup as a representation of the blood of Jesus given for your salvation and mine. And let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this Reminder, you have told us that when we do this, to do it in remembrance of you. And this morning, as we remember, Lord Jesus, what you have done for us, but also what you are doing for us even now in this moment, we ask you that you would be present in a way that washes away all other things that compete for our attention. Throughout this series, Lord, we've been praying these prayers of allegiance to our King Jesus. And this morning as we pray, Lord, we ask that you would enable us to deal with the things that are in our hearts. I know for some of us, this is something that hits us square between the eyes because we have an issue with anger, we have an issue with lust, and it plays out in destructive patterns in our lives. It may not be visible outwardly, to even those who know us the best, but Lord, you know that it is causing chaos in our hearts and our lives right now. You have told us that you will give us the fruit of self-control. And Lord, I pray for every person here this morning who is at their wit's end thinking, Lord, I can't do this, I need your help, that they would fall on the mercy and grace of Jesus, that they would rest in your grace 
And Lord Jesus, that they would see where your spirit is leading to cultivate freedom in that area. We call out those passions that are disordered in our hearts of anger and lust and bitterness and a feeling of non-forgiveness that have caused so much havoc in our lives, maybe in our relationships. Father, certainly with our relationship with you, and I pray that we would have this sense of urgency that Jesus points to in his sermon on the mount that we just read this morning. That if we see that issue, that we would pluck it out, that we would cut it off, that we would do everything to run in the opposite direction from it. That for people who need to be reconciled and people who need to promote reconciliation, that we would do the hard thing that in the end gives us freedom because you have truly set us free. And I pray that we would not fall for the lie that I'm just a sinner, so this is just what I do. Instead, remind us of your word that you have been made new. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we have become people who are freed by the righteousness of Jesus and the ministry of his spirit. I pray that that would be the truth that we cling to as we continue to battle. Lord, certainly sanctification does feel like war sometimes, but we know that in the end we have the one who is victorious over it all our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. So, I like to say from time to time, um, don't waste your sin. And the reason I say that is because I believe when the Holy Spirit brings to mind conviction of sin in our lives, that He wants to defeat that thing in us. And that as much as we want to see it gone, He wants to see it gone immeasurably more. And so, I pray that as you, if the Lord has brought something to your, your heart this morning, either having to do with bitterness, anger, some kind of relationship where you haven't been able to forgive somebody, that you deal with it and you deal with it swiftly this morning. If it's a lust, if it has to do with those things that are improper in your life, that are really taking hold of your mind and your heart, and you feel the tug of it all the time, it's going to be a process, but, we're, but you're being called to work on that as well. I believe that when the Lord calls those things to mind, He doesn't do it to shame us, He does it to work, on, work through us by His grace and salvation. So, Go in the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. As you leave this morning, we want to ask you, if you want to fill out a prayer card, we have prayer cards back on the table. You know, anything that you have going on in your life, anything you're struggling with, family member, friend, anything that you're aware of that you want us to pray for, we pray over those as a staff each week. We have a prayer team as well as elders that take a look at that prayer list. They pray for them as well. And so if you would fill out one of those cards, drop it in the offering stand as you leave this morning. We'll make sure it gets to the right place. So have a great week. Love you guys. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.